Chapter Ten of Three Men on the Bummel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Three Men on the Bummel by Jerome K. Jerome. Chapter Ten. Baden from the visitor's point of view. Beauty of the early morning, as viewed from the preceding afternoon. Distance, as measured by the compass. Ditto, as measured by the leg. George, in account with his conscience. A lazy machine. Bicycling, according to the poster, its restfulness. The poster cyclist, its costume, its method. The griffin, as a household pet. A dog with proper self-respect. The horse that was abused. From Baden, about which it need only be said, that it is a pleasure resort, singularly like other pleasure resorts, of the same description, we started bicycling in earnest. We planned a ten-days tour, which, while completing the Black Forest, should include a spin down the Donuthol, which for the twenty miles from Tutlingen to Sigvaringen is perhaps the finest valley in Germany. The Danube stream, here winding its narrow way past old world and spoilt villages, past ancient monasteries, nestling in green pastures, where still the barefooted and bareheaded friar, his robe girdle tight about his loins, shepherds with crook in hand, his sheep upon the hillsides, through rocky woods, between sheer walls of cliff, whose every towering crag stands crowned with ruined fortress, church, or castle, together with a blick at the Voskis Mountains, where half the population is bitterly pained if you speak to them in French, the other half being insulted when you address them in German, and the whole indignantly contemptuous at the first sound of English, a state of things that renders conversation with the stranger somewhat nervous work. We did not succeed in carrying out our programme in its entirety, for the reason that human performance lags ever behind human intention. It is easy to say, and believe at three o'clock in the afternoon, that we will rise at five, breakfast lightly at half-past, and start away at six. Then we shall be well on our way before the heat of the day sets in, remarks one. This time of year the early morning is really the best part of the day, don't you think so? adds another. Oh, undoubtedly. So cool and fresh. And half the lights are so exquisite. The first morning one maintains one's vows. The party assembles at half-past five. It is very silent. Individually, somewhat snappy. Inclined to grumble with its food, also with most other things. The atmosphere charged with compressed irritability seeking its vent. In the evening, the tempter's voice is heard. "'I think if we got off half-past six, sharp, that would be time enough,' the voice of virtue protests faintly. "'It will be breaking our resolution,' the tempter replies. "'Resolutions were made for man, not man for resolutions.' The devil can paraphrase scripture for his own purpose. "'Besides, it is disturbing the whole hotel. Think of the poor servants.' The voice of virtue continues, but even feebler. But everybody gets up early in these parts. 
They would not if they were not obliged to. Poor things. Say breakfast at half-past six, punctual. That will be disturbing nobody. Thus sin masquerades under the guise of good, and one sleeps till six, explaining to one's conscience, who, however, doesn't believe it, that one does this because of unselfish consideration for others. I have known such consideration extend until seven of the clock. Likewise, distance measured with a pair of compasses is not precisely the same as when measured by the leg. Ten miles an hour for seven hours, seventy miles, a nice easy day's work. There are some stiff hills to climb. The other side to come down. Say eight miles an hour and call it sixty miles. Got nimble if we can average eight miles an hour. We'd better go in bath chairs. It does seem somewhat impossible to do less on paper. But at four o'clock in the afternoon the voice of duty rings less trumpet-toned. Well, I suppose we ought to be getting on. Oh, there. There's no hurry. Don't fuss. Lovely view from here, isn't it? Very. Don't forget, we are twenty-five miles from St. Blasian. How far? Twenty-five miles. A little over, if anything. Do you mean to say we have only come thirty-five miles? That's all. Nonsense. I don't believe that map of yours. It is impossible, you know. We've been riding steadily ever since the first thing this morning. No, we haven't. We didn't get away till eight to begin with. Quarter to eight. Well, quarter to eight in every half-dozen miles. We stopped. We have only stopped to look at the view. It's no good coming to see a country and then not seeing it. And we have had to pull up some stiff hills. Besides, it has been an exceptionally hot day today. Well, don't forget St. Blasian is twenty-five miles off. That's all. Any more hills? Yes, two up and down. I thought you said it was downhill into St. Blasian. So it is for the last ten miles. We are twenty-five miles from St. Blasian here. Isn't there anywhere between here and St. Blasian? What's that little place there, on the lake? It isn't St. Blasian anywhere near it. There's a danger in beginning that sort of thing. There's a danger in overworking oneself. One should study moderation in all things. Pretty little place. That Tennessee, according to the map, looks as if there would be good air there. All right, I'm agreeable. It was you fellows who suggested our making for St. Blasian. Oh, I'm not so keen on St. Blasian. Pokey little place down in a valley. This Tennessee, I should say, was ever so much nicer. Quite near, isn't it? Five miles. General chorus. We'll stop at Tittacy. George made discovery of this difference between theory and practice on the very first day of our ride. I thought, said George, he was riding the single, Harris and I being a little ahead on the tandem, that the idea was to train up the hills and ride down them. So it is, answered Harris, as a general rule. But the trains don't go up every hill in the Black Forest. Somehow I felt a suspicion that they wouldn't, growled George, and for a while silence reigned. Besides, remarked Harris, who had evidently been ruminating the subject, 
"'You would not wish to have nothing but downhill, surely. "'It would not be playing the game. "'One must take a little rough with one smooth.' "'Again there returned silence, "'broken after a while by George this time. "'Don't you two fellows ever exert yourselves merely on my account?' said George. "'How do you mean?' asked Harris. "'I mean,' answered George, "'that where a train does happen to be going up these hills, "'don't you put aside the idea of taking it for fear of outraging my finer feelings. "'Personally, I am prepared to go up all these hills in a railway train. "'Even if it's not playing the game, I'll square the thing with my conscience. "'I've been up at seven every day for a week now, and I calculate it owes me a bit.' "'Don't you consider me in the matter at all?' "'We promised to bear this in mind, "'and again the ride continued in dogged dumbness "'until it was again broken by George. "'What bicycle did you say this was of ours?' asked George. "'Harris told him. "'I forget of what particular manufacture it happened to be. "'It is immaterial.' "'Are you sure?' persisted George. "'Of course I am sure,' answered Harris. "'Why, what's the matter with it?' "'Well, it doesn't come up to the poster,' said George. "'That's all.' "'What poster?' asked Harris. "'The poster advertising this particular brand of cycle,' exclaimed George. "'I was looking at one on a hoarding in Sloane Street only a day or two before we started. "'A man was riding this make of machine, a man with a banner in his hand. "'He wasn't doing any work. That was clear as daylight. "'He was just sitting on the thing and drinking in the air.' The cycle was going of its own accord, and going well. This thing of yours leaves all the work to me. It is a lazy brute of a machine. If you don't shove, it simply does nothing. I should complain about it if I were you. When one comes to think of it, few bicycles do realise the poster. On only one poster that I can recollect have I seen the rider represented as doing any work. But then this man was being pursued by a bull, in ordinary cases the object of the artist is to convince the hesitating neophyte that the sport of bicycling consists in sitting on a luxurious saddle and being moved rapidly in the direction you wish to go by unseen heavenly powers generally speaking the rider is a lady and then one feels that for perfect bodily rest combined with entire freedom from mental anxiety slumber upon a water-bed cannot compare with bicycle-riding upon a hilly road. No ferry travelling on a summer cloud could take things more easily than does the bicycle girl, according to the poster. Her costume for cycling in hot weather is ideal. Old-fashioned, landladies might refuse her lunch, it is true, a narrow-minded police force might desire to secure her and wrap her in a rug preliminary to summonizing her, but such she heeds not up hill and down hill through traffic that might tax the ingenuity of a cat over road surfaces calculated to break the average steam-roller she passes a vision of idle loveliness her fair hair streaming to the wind her sylph-like form poised airily one foot upon the saddle the other resting lightly upon the lamp sometimes she condescends to sit down on the saddle then she puts her feet on the rests lights a cigarette and waves above her head a Chinese lantern. Less often, it is a mere male thing that rides the machine. He is not so accomplished an acrobat as is the lady. But simple tricks, 
such as standing on the saddle and waving flags, drinking beer or beef tea while riding. He can and does perform something one supposes he must do to occupy his mind, sitting still hour after hour on this machine, having no work to do, nothing to think about, must pall upon any man of active temperament. Thus it is that we see him rising on his pedals as he nears the top of some high hill to apostrophize the sun, or address poetry to the surrounding scenery. Occasionally the poster pictures a pair of cyclists. One grasps the fact how much superior for purposes of flirtation is the modern bicycle to the old-fashioned parlour or the played-out garden gate. He and she mount their bicycles, being careful, of course, that such are of the right make. After that, they have nothing to think about but the old sweet tale. Down shady lanes, through busy towns on market days, merrily roll the wheels of the Bermondsey Company's bottom bracket Britain's best, or of the Camberwell Company's jointless Eureka. They need no peddling, they require no guiding. Give them their heads and tell them what time you want to get home, and that is all they ask while Edwin leans from his saddle to whisper the dear old nothings in Angelina's ear, while Angelina's face, to hide its blushes, is turned towards the horizon at the back. The magic bicycles pursue their even course, and the sun is always shining, and the roads are always dry. No stern parent rides behind, no interfering aunt beside, no demon small boy brother is peeping round the corner. There never comes a skid. Ah, me! Why were there no Britain's bests nor Camberwell Eurekas to be hired when we were young? Or maybe the Britain's best or the Camberwell Eureka stands leaning against a gate. Maybe it is tired. It has worked hard all the afternoon, carrying these young people. Mercifully minded, they have dismounted to give the machine a rest. They sit upon the grass beneath the shade of graceful boughs. It is long and dry grass. A stream flows by their feet. All is rest and peace. That is ever the idea the cycle-poster artist sets himself to convey. Rest in peace. But I am wrong in saying that no cyclist, according to the poster, ever works. Now I come to reflect. I have seen posters representing gentlemen on cycles working very hard, overworking themselves, one might almost say. They are thin and haggard with the toil. The perspiration stands upon their brow in beads. You feel that if there is another hill beyond the poster, they must either get off or die. But this is the result of their own folly. This happens because they will persist in riding a machine of an inferior make. Were they riding a Putney Popular, or a Battersea Bounder, such as the sensible young man in the centre of the poster rides, then all this unnecessary labour would be saved to them. Then all required of them would be, as in gratitude bound, to look happy, perhaps occasionally to backpedal a little, when the machine is in its youth buoyancy, loses its head for a moment, and dashes on too swiftly. You tired young men, sitting dejectedly on milestones, too spent to heed the steady rain that soaks you through, you weary maidens, with the straight damp hair, anxious about the time, longing to swear, not knowing how, you stout, bold men, vanishing visibly, as you pant and grunt along the endless road, you purple, dejected matrons, plying with pain the slow, unwilling wheel. Why did you not see to it that you bought a Britain's Best or a Camberwell Eureka? 
Why are these bicycles of inferior make so prevalent throughout the land? Or is it with bicycling as with all other things? Does life at no point realize the poster? The one thing in Germany that never fails to charm and fascinate me is the German dog. In England one grows tired of the old breeds. One knows them all so well. The mastiff, the plum-pudding dog, the terrier, black, white, or rough-haired, as the case may be, but always quarrelsome. The collie, the bulldog, never anything new. Now in Germany you get variety. You come across dogs the like of which you have never seen before, that until you hear them bark you do not know are dogs. It is all so fresh, so interesting. George stopped a dog in Sigmaringen and drew our attention to it. It suggested a cross between a codfish and a poodle. I would not like to be positive it was not a cross between a codfish and a poodle. Harris tried to photograph it, but it ran up a fence and disappeared through some bushes. I do not know what the German breeder's idea is. At present he retains his secret. George suggests he is aiming at a griffin. There is much to bear out his theory, and indeed in one or two cases I have come across success on these lines, would seem to have been almost achieved. Yet I cannot bring myself to believe that such are anything more than mere accidents. The German is practical, and I fail to see the object of a griffin. If mere quaintness of design be desired, is there not already the dachshund? What more is needed? Besides, about a house a griffin would be so inconvenient, people would be continually treading on its tail. My own idea is that what the Germans are trying for is a mermaid, which they will then train to catch fish. For your German does not encourage laziness in any living thing. He likes to see his dogs work, and the German dog loves to work. Of that there can be no doubt. The life of the English dog must be a misery to him. Imagine a strong, active, and intelligent being of exceptionally energetic temperament, condemned to spend twenty-four hours a day in absolute idleness. How would you like it yourself? No wonder he feels misunderstood, yearns for the unattainable, and gets himself into trouble generally. Now the German dog, on the other hand, has plenty to occupy his mind. He is busy and important. Watch him as he walks along harnessed to his milk-cart. No church-warden at collection-time could feel or look more pleased with himself. He does not do any real work. The human being does the pushing. He does the parking. That is his idea of division of labour. What he says to himself is, The old man can't bark, but he can shove very well. The interest and the pride he takes in the business is quite beautiful to see. Another dog passing by makes maybe some jeering remark, casting discredit upon the creaminess of the milk. He stops suddenly, quite regardless of the traffic. I beg your pardon. What was that you said about my milk? I said nothing about your milk, retorts the other dog, in a tone of gentle innocence. I merely said it was a fine day and asked the price of chalk. Oh, you asked the price of chalk, did you? Would you like to know? Yes, thanks. Somehow I thought you would be able to tell me. You are quite right. I can. It's worth— Oh, do come along, says the old lady, who is tired and hot and anxious to finish her round. Yes, but hang it all, did you hear that he hinted about our milk? Oh, never mind him. 
there's a tram coming round the corner we shall all get run over yes but i do mind him one has one's proper pride he asked the price of chalk and he's going to know it it's worth just twenty times as much you'll have the whole thing over i know you will cries the old lady pathetically struggling with her feeble strength to haul him back oh dear oh dear i do wish i had left you at home the tram is bearing down upon them a cab-driver is shouting at them another huge brute hoping to be in time to take a hand is dragging a bread-cart followed by a screaming child across the road from the opposite side a small crowd is collecting and a policeman is hastening to the scene it's worth says the milk dog just twenty times as much as you'll be worth before i've done with you oh you think so do you yes i do you grandson of a french poodle you cabbage-eating there i knew you'd have it over says the poor milkwoman i told him he'd have it over but he is busy and heeds her not five minutes later when the traffic is renewed when the bread-girl has collected her muddy rolls and the policeman has gone off with his name and address of everybody in the street he consents to look behind him it is a bit of an upset he admits then shaking himself free of care he adds cheerfully but i guess i taught him a price of chalk he won't interfere with us again i'm thinking i'm sure i hope not says the old lady regarding dejectedly the milky road but his favourite sport is to wait at the top of the hill for another dog and then race down on these occasions the chief occupation of the other fellow is to run about behind picking up the scattered articles loaves cabbages or shirts as they are jerked out at the bottom of the hill he stops and waits for his friend good race wasn't it he remarks panting as the human comes up laden to the chin i believe i'd have won it too if it hadn't been for that fool of a small boy he was right in my way just as i turned the corner you noticed him wish i had beastly brat what's he yelling like that for because i knocked him down and ran over him well why didn't he get out of the way it's disgraceful the way people lead their children about for other people to tumble over hello did all those things come out you couldn't have packed them very carefully you should have seen to a thing like that you did not dream of my tearing down to hill twenty miles an hour surely you know me better than that to expect i'd let that old schneider's dog pass me without an effort but there you never think you're sure you've got them all you believe so i shouldn't believe if i were you i should run back up the hill again and make sure you feel too tired oh all right don't blame me if anything is missing that's all he is so self-willed he is cocksure that the correct turning is the second on the right and nothing will persuade him that it is the third he is positive he can get across the road in time and will not be convinced until he sees the cart smashed up then he is very apologetic it is true but of what use is that as he is usually of the size and strength of a young bull and his human companion is generally a weak-kneed old man or woman or a small child he has his way the greatest punishment his proprietor can inflict upon him is to leave him at home and take the cart out alone but your german is too kind-hearted to do this often that he is harnessed to the cart for anybody's pleasure but his own it is impossible to believe and i am confident that the german peasant plans the tiny harness and fashions the little cart 
purely with the hope of gratifying his dog. In other countries, in Belgium, Holland, and France, I have seen these drought dogs ill-treated and overworked, but in Germany never. Germans abuse animals shockingly. I have seen a German stand in front of his horse and call it every name he could lay his tongue to, but the horse did not mind it. I have seen a German, weary with abusing his horse, call to his wife to come out and assist him. When she came, he told her what the horse had done. The recital roused the woman's temper to almost equal heat with his own, and standing one each side of the poor beast, they both abused it. They abused its dead mother. They insulted its father. They made cutting remarks about its personal appearance, its intelligence, its moral sense, its general ability as a horse. The animal bore the torrent with exemplary patience for a while. Then it did the best thing possible to do under the circumstances. Without losing its own temper, it moved quietly away. The lady returned to her washing, and the man followed it up the street, still abusing it. A kinder-hearted people than the Germans there is no need for. Cruelty to animal or child is a thing almost unknown in the land. The whip with them is a musical instrument. Its crack is heard from morning to night. But an Italian coachman that in the streets of Dresden I once saw use it was very nearly lynched by the indignant crowd. Germany is the only country in Europe where the traveller can settle himself comfortably in his hired carriage, confiding that his gentle, willing friend between the shafts will be neither overworked nor cruelly treated. End of chapter 10 Recording by Tara Mendoza, Phoenix, Arizona, June 2011